0: In God's word is from Second Peter chapter three, beginning in the first verse. Second Peter chapter three, beginning with verse one. Peter writes, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and with water. By water also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you about with the wisdom God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen.
1: Now we're looking at the covenants that God has established with men. Immediately after the fall, God established a covenant with Adam. He established a covenant with Adam, and that is called the covenant of commencement, because in that covenant, God commenced his processes of salvation for men. Now we're looking at the covenant that God made with Noah. And this also is an aspect of God's covenant to redeem. God's commitment to redeem a people to himself. Now there's some particular aspects of the covenant with Noah that we already have looked at. Last week we saw the interrelation of the covenant of Noah with the creational covenant. God's intentions and plans in redemption are as broad as his intentions and plans in creation. And so the covenant has implications for the totality of man's life. We saw also the particularism of that covenant, how God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart were only evil all the day. But God showed grace to Noah. God showed grace to Noah, and that is particularism. That is, out of that totality of depraved humanity, God saw one man and put his grace and favor on him. And then we saw that God deals with families in the covenant. It is not just with individuals, but in the context of families that God works redemption. Now this evening we are going to continue to look at the covenant with Noah and see three more aspects of that covenant that are critical. Let's remember now that these covenants are things with which God has bound himself to the world that continue to have significance even today. Now this evening we see the fourth major element of the covenant with Noah, and that is the aspect of preservation. The aspect of preservation. And that is probably more at the heart of the covenant with Noah than anything else that God, that is an aspect of that covenant. That God in this covenant commits himself to preserve the earth until he can accomplish redemption for his people. Now look at Genesis chapter 8, and you can see where this emphasis on preservation arises in his covenant with Noah. Genesis chapter 8, at verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, for every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. If you have a New International Version, you will notice that I departed a little bit from the reading there, and you will notice that even they also put a little footnote. The scripture says, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, And literally it says, because every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Now the NIV is translated, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Now why did they make that little departure from that which is the most evident reading and rendering of that text? Well, because it looks like a non sequitur, something that doesn't follow. You would read, you would think that the Word of God would say, because every inclination of man's heart is evil from childhood, therefore I will keep on cursing him. I will keep on bringing judgment on the world because man's heart is evil from his childhood. But instead, the scripture here says, never again will I curse the ground because of man because every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Now, what is the point? Well, the point is that God knows that judgment isn't going to cure the sin problem of man's heart. God knows that there's no way that his judgment is going to wrench the evil out of man's heart. And so if he started at this point on judging man every time he sinned with a proper consequence for that sin, then there would be no salvation for men. So contrary to that, God here binds himself and commits himself that never again will he destroy the earth as he did in the days of Noah until the consummation, until the end of time. He will not do it again. God made his point once and he made it very well. We read about it in the New Testament reading. Some scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? All things have continued since the beginning of the world, the same as always. And, this, and Peter says, and this and this, they are being willfully ignorant of the fact that on one occasion, God destroyed the world in the flood of Noah. So God made his point. And the word of God attests to that fact that he is going to be judgmental with respect to the wicked. But in order that redemption might be accomplished, because God is not delighting in the death of the wicked, He commits himself in covenant, not again to destroy the earth as he did on the occasion of the flood with Noah. So long as the earth endures, and notice that qualification, so long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Now we have some agronomists right here in our congregation and they depend on this verse to be true. That seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. You can count on it. The seasons will be regular. Not just because the seasons will be regular, but because God has entered into a covenant with this world. Because God has bound himself to see to it that there will be a regularity of the seasons of the earth. This is God's commitment to preserve the earth. Now, if you continue in chapter 9, you can see a further emphasis on the preservation of the earth. And here you have the Word of God speaking some very direct words to some very complex problems. The complex problems of of capital punishment, the complex problems related to war, even in the 20th century. Notice in Genesis 9, verses 3 and following, what the Word of God says. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you any, everything. But, says the Word of God, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it, the blood still flowing in the animal. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Now in these verses you see respectful life as the theme. The broader context is God's commitment to preserve the earth. And one way he is to preserve the earth, even while the the violence and the sin of man is rampant in this world, is to show his concern for respect for life in this world. Here you have the institution of the state in seed form. And this verse, these verses may be contrasted with Genesis chapter four. In Genesis chapter four, you will remember that in that particular context, God was dealing with Cain, the first murderer. And what did God say with respect to Cain in Genesis chapter four, verse 15? He said, no man is to touch him. No man is to touch him. If anyone tries to avenge the blood of Abel for the murder of Cain, then I will avenge that man seven times. No man is to touch Cain. I reserve to myself the right of taking the life of another human being. That was the circumstance of Cain. But now, after the flood, after that terrible wickedness of man had grown rampant in the whole of the earth, now God gives another circumstance in which he says, I will demand an accounting. And that accounting will be reckoned whether it be by man or beast that another man is slain. If a beast should kill a man, that beast must be put to death. There can be no breach of that principle. And if a man kills another man, that man must be put to death. Here you have, in seed form, the establishment of the authority of the state. The state is being given that most solemn responsibility to bring judgment, the judgment of God, as it were, upon the murderer. And all of this is done in a context of God's concern to preserve the earth, because of the extensiveness of the violence that covered the earth before the days of Noah, God now says there must be a restraint upon the wickedness of man. If I let man go alone, if I let man go on his own, I will have to come in and execute murderers constantly. I will have to bring another flood upon the face of the earth. But in order to restrain the wickedness of man, I now institute the state and give to them that ultimate power And also that ultimate responsibility to take the life of another man. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Most solemn words indeed. There is, as a matter of fact, a Hebrew poetic parallelism here. It's an A, B, C, A. C, B, A, parallelism, to emphasize this particular phraseology. Whosoever sheds the the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. A, B, C, C, B, A. Whosoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And you have almost a reflection of the lex talionis, the law of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth here. That ultimately is a law of justice and righteousness. And God is saying that in the ordering of the state, if anyone should murder another man, that man's life must be taken from him. Now the reason for capital punishments being instituted is found in That last verse of verse 6, or the last phrase of verse 6, for in the image of God made he man. Now this little phrase has been understood to be functioning in two ways. It could be explaining why God would allow such a solemn responsibility to be placed in the hands of man. How is it that God would let another one man become the judge of another man, even to the point of taking his life? Well, the answer is because God has made man in the image of God. And as a matter of fact, you find that emphasis in the Psalms, where the psalmist writes, I said, ye are gods. And there, that phrase, ye are gods, is speaking of the judges of Israel. They were using the function and responsible, exercising the function and the responsibility of God himself in judging other men. And men are given that capacity, given that responsibility, because they are in the image of God. Now that last phrase has been read also to be an explanation as to why the murderer must die. Whosoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. That is, what is a murderer doing? What is the awfulness of this thing that he is doing? Why he is attacking the image of God. When a man rises up and assaults another man with the intent to kill him, He is, as it were, attacking the very likeness and the image of God. He is attempting, as it were, to murder God. And for that reason, the scripture says, to preserve the honor and the dignity of God before the whole of humanity, whosoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. Now this particular legislation that is given here is sometimes represented as a temporal legislation. Something that was there for a while in the Old Testament times, but not something that is to continue to be abiding among men today. And as you read the other parts of the covenant with Noah, you notice where he says, you must not eat meat that has its life blood still in it. Obviously, that is temporal legislation. It is explicitly repealed in the New Testament, in a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul the Apostle says, all things are clean. You need not worry about those kinds of laws. Would you then conclude that also this legislation, whosoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Is that a temporal kind of thing that was there for a while, something that related to the Old Testament that would not relate as well to the New Testament? Well, that would be a possibility, except that it does appear that there is a consistency in the Scripture in this regard. Not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, this principle is retained and upheld. Just notice how it is retained in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 21, verse 28. What does Exodus 21, verse 28 say? Exodus 21, verse 28. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull must be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten, but the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. So if an animal kills a man, that animal is to be put to death. That is one way of showing respect for human life, to see that it is something that is most valuable, more valuable than any animal, that might have the killer instinct built in him, is a human being. He's not like other animals. Now look at Exodus 21, verse 12, and you can see how that applies to man as well. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. You notice verse 13, that there is also an allusion to the fact that if something is not done intentionally, it doesn't bear the same punishment. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place that I will designate. There's a difference in manslaughter and murder, even in the legislation of the Old Testament. You can see also in Numbers chapter 35, verses 16 through 21, this same legislation. Numbers chapter 35, verses 16 and following. If a man strikes someone with an iron object so that he dies, he is a murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a stone in his hand that could kill and he strikes someone so that he dies, he is a murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a wooden object in his hand that could kill and he hits someone so that he dies, he is a murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If anyone with malice aforethought, shoves another or throws something at him intentionally so that he dies, or if in hostility he hits him with his fist so that he dies, that person shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. It's a most solemn thing and something that we need to watch very carefully. Anger and malice is something that any one of us is capable of. We need to be careful to understand that we can be someone who could be led even to the most awesome act of murder if we do not understand how terrible that act is in the sight of God. Now looking at the New Testament, you see this same law underscored in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do the wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now you don't chasten with the sword. You execute with the sword. And Paul is here recognizing the authority of the state to take the life with the sword. The same is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and following. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up of God. So the governor then is sent by God to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And that is according to the teaching of the New Testament as well. Now in that awesome circumstance, in some situations it may be, and this is a very delicate thing, but in some situations it may be that one state will have to intervene in the affairs of another state. If one state becomes aggressive and begins to bring murder upon another state, it may be that a third state will then have the obligation under God to intervene with the sword to defend the life of those who are being killed or to bring judgment upon those who are executing murder on a mass scale by invading another country. Now, these are awesome kinds of things that we have to deal with. But we have to recognize that in the context of the plagues as they are described in Revelation chapter, in the the latter part of the chapter of the book of Revelation, there there is a need for a restraint of the evil that is in the world. And that restraint is established by the power of the sword established in human government. So here is preservation, preservation as an essential aspect of the covenant with Noah. Now a second aspect to notice with respect to the covenant with Noah is the aspect of, or a universalistic aspect that is a critical part of the covenant with Noah. Last week we saw that there was a particularistic dimension of the covenant with Noah that God is very particular or very specific in his showing grace to humanity. But there is another way and another aspect of God's relationship to men and sin, and that is a universalistic aspect. Look at Genesis chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, to see this universalistic aspect of the covenant with Noah. Genesis chapter 9, 9, Verses nine and 10. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. There is a universalistic dimension in the covenant with Noah. There is an inclusion here of the totality of the universe. And that universalistic dimension is reflected in the New Testament in a passage like Romans chapter 8, where Paul the Apostle says, the whole earth groans and travails, waiting for the redemption that is to come for God's people. The whole of the universe waits and groans for its redemption as the new heavens and the new earth are to come into being. Furthermore, in this universalistic aspect of the covenant with Noah, you can see the framework for the universalistic proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is building on the covenant with Noah. And here you see the universalistic framework for the proclamation of the gospel. What does the psalmist say? The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day pours forth speech. Night after night displays knowledge. There is no speech nor language. Their voice is not heard, and yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. There is the universalistic proclamation of God's good grace to the totality of humanity built on the covenant with Noah. Day unto day, utter speech. That is the regularity of the day that God established in the covenant with Noah, preaches to the world. Night unto night shows knowledge as the regularity of the seasons, as the regularity of the day and night comes to the totality of the universe. So God is showing his his grace and mercy toward the totality of humanity. And it's in that context that the whosoever will of the gospel goes forth. We must never misrepresent the particularity of God's grace so that we fail also to see the importance of the universality of the proclamation of the gospel. That's what we read about in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the scripture tonight. As Timothy, or 2 Peter chapter 3. As Peter says, the These men are saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his return? And they're willfully ignorant of the fact that the flood once came, destroying the earth. But then he says, but one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, says Peter, but is long-suffering to you, not wishing that Any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, here we do not understand that scripture of Peter to say that God has willed that all should come to repentance. For for if God had willed that all should come to repentance, what would happen? Then all would come to repentance. But he does not desire that all should, that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. What is that saying? It is saying that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. It is reminding us that the Lord Jesus wept tears over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that persecute the prophets, and slay those that God has sent you. You who would crucify the Son of God, how often would I have gathered you under my wings, and you would not come. Jesus looked out at the multitudes, and he was moved with compassion for them. And he said, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of harvest, that he would thrust forth his laborers into the harvest. Let us not ever become cold-hearted and think that God is at any time pleased with the destruction of any wicked. But God is moved with compassion. And God would have all to come to eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. God would have the proclamation of the gospel, go, As Christ has said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples of all the nations. And that universalistic dimension is built into the framework of the covenant with Noah. Even as day unto day utters speech, and night unto night shows knowledge, even as the sun's rays touch upon every nook and cranny of the face of the earth, even as every human being benefits from the regularity of the sun and the moon and the seasons, so God would have the blessings of the gospel come to every man. God wants every man to hear the gospel, and God has commissioned you. If you feel challenged, Think of what the 12 must have felt originally. You are to go into all the world, Jesus said, and you 12 are to preach the gospel to every creature. That is your challenge. You are to see to it that every single person, not a person lives in Hyattsville who should not hear the gospel. And as much as you are capable, you should take that gospel to every single person with whom you come into contact. And beginning here, then you go into Maryland. And from there, you go into the United States. And from there, you go into the uttermost parts of the earth. And you're not satisfied until every single human being upon the face of the earth has heard the gospel. That is the desire of God, that all men should hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know, that in God's mysterious purposes, this one will come and that one will not. This one will receive the grace of God and that one will not. What is behind that mystery we cannot fully understand, but our responsibility is to see that every single creature on the face of the earth has heard the good news. Even as the sun falls with regularity on all men, so the gospel should be given to the whole of the earth. And that brings us to the last dimension, our emphasis of the covenant with Noah, which is the gracious character of the covenant with Noah. I set my bow in the clouds. You see those bloated rain clouds? They are threatening the judgment of God upon the whole of the earth. But even in the midst of that judgment is the bow set in the clouds. And what a comfort it should be to each and every one of you that as Revelation chapter 4 describes the throne of God, it says that there is a rainbow over the throne. A rainbow like an emerald showing the life-giving grace that is the characteristic of God's covenant with men. That covenant being established all the way back in the days of Noah. How good is our God? How gracious and merciful is he? And we as his disciples should show that same grace to all the nations. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you have brought the gospel to us. And we ask that you will help us by all the endeavors that we might make to take the gospel to others. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have this great and grand program, that by our words and by our lives, we can attest to your grace and mercy in the world. We pray for the nations of the world that order may be maintained, that wickedness may be restrained, so that the gospel may be preached. Be merciful to us in our day, O Lord, and hasten the day when every eye shall see the Son of God. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. Let us stand for the benediction. Now may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit abide with you all now and
0: forevermore. Amen.